Welcome to Strike Up the Conversation on Post Show Recaps, bringing you coverage of the labor disputes happening now in television and film. I'm Dr. Amanda, and I'm your host for these conversations. I'm very excited about the conversation that we have in store for you today. We're going to be talking all about the questions of artificial intelligence that have become a major focal point in the disputes between the AMPTP and both the WGA and SAG-AFTRA. In order to help us do that, I'm joined by a fantastic guest, uh, my dear friend, Dan Schiffman, who is a computer program and associate arts professor at the Interactive Telecommunications Program at NYU Tisch School of the Arts. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. I've been um, listening to all the previous pods in this series, and it's been an eye-opening, super educational, uh, wonderful experience to hear from so many intelligent, smart voices. I'm glad to be here and see if I can add anything to the conversation. Oh, absolutely. We're really we're we're really looking forward to having your voice join that conversation as well. I mentioned some of your credentials, uh, computer programming professor at NYU, but I perhaps I left out one of your most notable uh, accomplishments, which is you the way that I came to know you is you create these very, very wonderful Twitter bots that tweet about different podcasts that I listen to. Yes. X bots, I guess, as we go. Oh, no. Oh, no. Sorry. I'm sorry to bring that up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's interesting. Um, And I I feel like that's actually one of the reasons why I'm sort of thrilled to be here, because I both uh, love and enjoy the creative possibilities of what people can make with technology and what that adds to the sort of human condition, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, how technology can be a tool for human expression and for human communication, but both, but also really uh, it's super important to me as I do this work and teach about this work to really think carefully about, you know, uh, how Technology can be used as a tool to cause harm, to undervalue human labor. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I'm not really an expert across uh, uh, across any of these specific uh, areas, but I'm always thinking about um, uh, in teaching how I can help students who are learning these tools and wanting to have creative careers, um, how they how they how they how they being in conversation with them to navigate um, what's what's to come. <laughs> yeah, no, fantastic. I think that that's a really wonderful perspective to bring to this conversation today. Um, and don't undersell yourself. I think that you're quite you're quite an expert and you're going to teach us a lot today. <laughs> um, but before we get into all of that, uh, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast by using our RSS feed post show recaps dot com slash strike when you search by URL on your podcast player of choice. That's postshowrecaps.com slash strike. And um, also feel free to rate and review. Join the conversation. You can leave me any uh, feedback or questions you have um, by going to postshowrecaps.com slash strike FAQ. Okay, uh, great. I wanted to start today, Dan, because uh, about a week ago, I noticed that Haley Erickson Golzer, who is um, Dan Erickson, the showrunner for Severance, actually tweeted that AI could not have written the UUR. Um, for our listeners who don't know, the UUR is a really, really delightful 
um, book that becomes kind of a, a big plot point in the television show Severance, and it's like wonderfully hilarious and 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 strange and trite and profound all at once. And uh, the irony of this, Dan, is that you actually did try to write have AI write the UUR. Yeah, it's. It, I, I loved seeing this, and um, you know, it couldn't be more uh, the sort of perfect starting point for this conversation in a way because my point of view here is, first of all, I'm a hundred percent in agreement with this the statement AI could not have written the UUR, and to me, what's wonderful about trying to work with some type of silly computer technology to generate something like the UUR is it, it's because I am in working on that I am building off of and uh, essentially making an homage to the incredible human creative creative work that is the UUR from Dan Erickson and the creative team at 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 Severance. So um, to me, the, the, the idea of making these Twitter bots as, you know, as a fan of a show, as just a playful experiment uh, is part of it, what I like to think of as additive to the, to the, the community of people who love the show and are following the show. Um, but I also should say that the UUR bot is on strike. It's, also on, it's strike. on strike. It will cross the <laughs> so, line. You know, to be honest, it kind of fell off because of you know the working with the Twitter API mm -hmm. has become a kind of a nightmare, and uh, you know I I I have the um, desire and interest to revive it if and when the strike ends and the show comes back for a second season. I think I would certainly would love to do that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but um, but yeah, it it's it's going dark now until it's at least in the, solidarity the <laughs> with with the WJA. Um, yeah, I mean I think that this is a really great starting point because you know I mentioned that um, you know we came to know e each other because I was uh, so delighted by the 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 stuff that you were doing creatively by adding to the fan community and creating these. Twitter bots and you've done the other things um, with Severance, you, you know, sort of recreated the experience of the Macrodata refinement and that was a game. Um, and I think that it, that there's somewhat of maybe this contradiction of being delighted and, 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 uh, and trying to maximize the use of these tools to enrich an experience, an artistic experience. There's somewhat of a tension between that and saying, that um you know that that there's a that there's a line we want to draw and we don't think that what uh artificial intelligence is creating is akin to the type of artistic expression that we that we value um as part of the what what writers and and actors and other uh creatives in the industry are providing um do you have a way that you sort of resolve that tension for yourself yeah, it's it's really tricky, and uh, I think one of the things that is uh, really difficult and challenging about this time is there aren't. It's not clear where those lines are, and I think there are some very obvious ones. Like if I were to take, you know, use. Um, uh, a photo that I got of Michael Chernus, who plays the character on the show and create a deep fake of him mm -hmm. and make videos of him reading <laughs> the mm -hmm. quotes that I'm generating from a bot, that would be over the line for me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and that's, you know, uh, um, and um, if I were potentially doing something like um, 
turning these funny little tweets into a book that I would mm. then sort of commercialize and try to sell. I think that also would be over the line because I'm, you know, profiting or maybe exploiting somebody else's creative ideas. So I don't know exactly where that line is. I try to find it. Certainly if, um, you know, uh, somebody... It, if I were to get a, a message from somebody, you know, saying like, hey, you know, we don't we don't like that that's there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if Dan Erickson were to write to me himself yeah. and say like, I don't really like that there's this bot that's kind of simulating the UUR, I would probably say like, okay, I, that's fine. You know, I'll take it down. You know, I'm really yeah. trying to do it as something uh, out of love and out of um, out of respect and love for the the, the project. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I think for me, it's, um, you know, I think we can get into a lot of this later, but I think a lot of this has to do with uh, data privacy, ownership, mm-hmm. authorship. I think those are the much more serious questions. Like, so, you know, whose voice is it that is writing these AI, so-called AI generated tweets? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I could go into the details of, you know, the different technical code that I wrote and what data I compiled and how maybe I trained a model and what other rules are baked into the system. But ultimately for me, like I am the author of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if, if the UUR bot were to tweet something harmful, it's my responsibility and I'm liable for that. I, that's how mm-hmm. I feel. So, and I think this also gets into, you know, I'm, I know I'm kind of like digressing here, but uh, other things that we have to talk about in terms of you know, uh, source material and literary material. What is, can't, you know, is uh, so-called, I, I keep saying so-called AI generated material. Maybe that would also be a good place for us. Yeah. Because I really don't like the term artificial intelligence. Mm. Um, and uh, I think it's just, it's super broad and can mean so many different things. And I think what's going on here is something much more specific. And right. Really specific technique. Right. Uh, statistical technique of generating text. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much great stuff there and, and, and that I want to follow up on. I think the part of what you you've um, you touched on and, and, I, and we'll get back to it, I think, at other parts in our conversation today is just this idea that, you know, as this technology has developed, we just sort of need to develop the regulations and guardrails that we've always had to, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, this is what copyright law is. And, you know, as the situation evolves, we have to kind of just adapt what our regulatory systems are and governance procedures right. so that we can and, account for this new case. And I think this is really why it's really exciting. I mean, I, you know, this is a very, uh, uh, not a not a positive situation. The fact that there is a labor strike and there's all you know a lot of people who are out of work and suffering and and a lot of challenges here. But I do think that it is really important that such a visible uh, com- community, the entertainment industry, um, are you know you've said this before. That some of the best communicators are out mm-hmm. there talking about this. It's a little bit of a canary in the coal mine, I think, uh, in the sense that you know it'd be great if our government could get together to. And I'm not saying this is easy, but to yeah. figure out what are what are ways to regulate the use of um, AI algorithms for generating content. Um, but that's not really happening. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and so if you know, if different industries, I mean, it would also be great if our government could establish a fair, like minimum rate wage for everybody. <laughs> so, um, but so that's why I think it's really important that if creative industries can, you know, get into this and come up with some, you know, ways of thinking, ways of talking, um, and some guidelines for how people can ethically use 
the you know what are ultimately just tools for creative expression. Um, I know there's a lot of talk about like AI tools replacing writers. That's not something that I. I mean, who wants that? <laughs> like, I guess there's like maybe there's some studio executives, right? Want well, that. we, yeah. you know, what would make more sense is replace the studio executives with AI. <laughs> wow. I mean, I think it'd be much like you know, in terms of, I mean, maybe that would be that would have some unintended consequences, mm-hmm, of, like mm-hmm. profit optimization yes, or something. Yes. But so yeah, so I, uh, to me, but I do think you know there has to be some like you're saying guardrails and and regulations around it, in particular around. Um, uh, just data ownership and and authorship. Yeah, let's let's talk specifically. Um, and you know, the WGA and the SAG after negotiations are both dealing with AI. Um, and there's overlap between those issues, but they are somewhat distinct. So I think it could be good to take them one at a time. Um, the WGA specifically is asking for uh, the studios to regulate the use of artificial intelligence on MBA covered projects. MBA is the minimum basic agreement. Um, AI can't write or rewrite literary material, can't be used as source material, and MBA covered material can't be used to train AI. So those are some of the requests in the WGA proposal. And before we talk about those specifically, just by way of a quick up um, update on where we are in the negotiations, the Writers Guild and the AMPTP have been meeting um, somewhat regularly. Now we are on our 113th day of the strike here, I believe on August 22. So we're definitely we're upwards of 100 days here and they're meeting, um, you know, somewhat regularly at this point, but it doesn't seem like there's been a major breakthrough. Um, but so so this is the ask from the WGA. Um, let's talk about what AI can actually do, what the writers are concerned about. I guess that the most kind of extreme version of this is I go into chat GPT and I say, write season two of severance. And then it spits out a 10 episode season of scripts. And then we just take those into production. Right, Dan? <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Perfect. What a plan. <laughs> what could go wrong? Um, yeah. So uh, first of all, I think this is really a smart and important um, I think, you know, there actually was just a recent case that came out yesterday around um, uh, whether that AI, a, an AI algorithm could own the copyright over a generated image. And uh, the judge struck that down and said, no, it cannot. I think this is similar to, I think there's the famous case of the monkey that took the selfie. Oh, <laughs> yeah. The monkey owned yeah. the copyright. I think so. I think it's sort of established, you know, again, I, by no means am I a legal expert, established law that um, you, know, you have to be a human to mm. uh, to um, to have copyright. Um, and so to me, it doesn't make sense for um, something that is um, a computer essentially to be able to receive credit. And one of the re- one of the things I learned recently, I was listening to John August, who I think is from the Script Notes podcast and a WJ writer who's um, maybe been a part of um, the uh, uh, negotiating committee. But one of the things I didn't really understand was that um, so when a um, when a movie, for example, is based on a book. So if you think about Oppenheimer, for example, which I think is based off of um, American Prometheus, if that's yeah. the name of the, the book title, um, that is source material. 
And uh, the screenplay is based on that. And I don't know what the percentages are, but it's it, as opposed to writing an original screenplay, you only receive a percentage of the residuals since the source okay. material is also getting that percentage. So it, if AI could be considered source material, then in theory, that's a mechanism for the studios to pay the authors less oh, money. Wow. Um, and it's kind of like saying, you know, the, the example, Wikipedia was given an example on the podcast I was listening to. I was thinking, it was like, you would never say like, you know, Oppenheimer from Christopher Nolan based on Wikipedia article on Oppenheimer, you know, that would seem so ridiculous to yeah. us. But yeah. in many ways, uh, um, this is, um, you know, what the, stu the students aren't necessarily asking for this. They're just kind of saying like, no, no, we won't talk about it, <laughs> uh, is from my understanding. Mm -hmm. But that, that I think is really, really important. And I also think it speaks to this value. So, for me, I, you know, I'm not someone writing a TV show, um, and so I can't tell a writer what would be best for their creative process. Maybe a writer is going to want to make use of some type of tool that can generate ideas, help them brainstorm, mm -hmm. and you know, get them over a writer's block. Um, you know, this is nothing new. You know, what in some, I mean, this is a false analogy in many ways, but like, I, that's why I don't like the term artificial intelligence. Cause I think spell check is. Well, that, that, but that's exactly what my question is. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so artificial intelligence is a term, I mean, it's been around since like the science fiction, at least of right. like the fifties and sixties. And, um, and it seems like all it, it, and it's and, you know, and it's this idea, I guess, that, you know, the definition of AI is what, you know, this idea that you have a, um, you know, some sort of computer program that can, um, you know, mimic intelligence. I think of the Turing test, which is, yeah. you know, you have a conversation with a computer and, and if it can trick a human conversation partner into thinking that it's an actual human being, it's said to have passed the test. I'm sure there's more specific uh, answers than that. But how is AI different from other types of computer programs and other analytic right. tools so, that we have had available for a long time that we already use. Yeah. So in some ways I would say AI isn't because AI just is to me is, is somewhat of a blanket term for all of these things. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a wonderful uh, kind of zine called a people's guide to AI by the artist Mimi Onuoha and, uh, and mother cyborg who I would certainly recommend people check out. It, it defines AI as the theory and development of computer systems able to perform tasks that normally require human intelligence. Mm -hmm. And, but you could say like adding five plus seven, uh, you know, it falls into that category. So for me, really what has changed and, and you know, we, if we wanted to, we could talk a little about the history mm -hmm. of this idea of a neural network and this, um, this, uh, this concept of a computer learning without being explicitly programmed. That to me is what, it's not new, but that's to me is what is driving this explosion of that we cannot seem to control or understand of what, it, what now generated content. So the term machine learning, I think, um, you know, uh, one of the original um, sort of examples of this is a, a, a well-known researcher, Arthur Samuels, who created the first like self-learning program to play um, play the game checkers. And the idea, so for me as a programmer, it's a, it, and when I work with students, it's a really nice way of thinking about it. So if I want, let's think about spell. I think we actually use spell check. It's kind of a mm. silly example. I think it might work. So if I needed to write software to spell check um, as I want to write a spell check app and I'm going to sell it for millions of dollars on the app store. It's going to be the greatest spell check app ever. I'm going to have to like get some list of all the words in the English language. I'm going to have to write some algorithm that's going to say like, okay, 
with this input text, look at every word, compare every word to every word in my dictionary, look at each letter, look at the letter's order. If a letter is out of order, then try to decide based on some metric if it should be switched. So I'm having to like develop this algorithm. And, and that was a terrible explanation of like, of how these people use like different distance checking algorithms mm. to check if a word is misspelled. But basically I am writing the rules explicitly designing as kind of, you know, you know, in a godlike way, you could say like designing the rules of a system and the computer is executing those rules. The, uh, the innovation of machine learning is to say, okay, what if instead of figuring out the rules for spell check, I'm just going to show you the computer thousands of times that I'm correcting my own spelling mm -hmm. and you, the computer, and I, I shouldn't even say you, the computer, because I'm anthropomorphizing in a way that's not accurate, but the computer should just look, use math to try to detect patterns in what I'm doing and then reproduce those patterns. So this is that, that concept of a machine uh, you know, the traditional programming, you have the input data and you want to get some output and you write the rules. Mm -hmm. Machine learning is I have some input data and I have some example output from that data. Now I want the program to figure out the rules. And so that's really what's happening with these systems that generate content. Um, you know, I, there's no way I could, uh, it would be unreasonable for me to ever think that I could write the rules to color every single pixel of an image so that it becomes a cat. Like how would mm -hmm. I write the rules for that? But there are systems now that can look at thousands upon thousands of the thousands of cat images and sort of extrapolate the, 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 um, the patterns in them and then regenerate new images essentially in the same style with the same quality. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, a gross oversimplification in many ways of how it works. So now I was going off on the explanation. I kind of forgot where I was trying to circle back to. But um, so I guess what I'm saying is, uh, I think we we're talking about like, what would act, what, what is the state of the art? In, in yeah. Could chat GPT really spit out a script to severance? So I would say no. I mean, this obviously, you know, and I think the main reason is, is, we're just uh, we're AI or AI. These machine learning models are very good at creating the appearance of something that looks like a script, and yeah. then it's the overall qualities of it. But it does. It's not going to have. Uh, a, a, and and one is like I think it's inherently like it's like a false question because to me, and I I, I I've heard you say this as well. Mm -hmm. Like I'm watching it because I know there's uh, people who've invested themselves in this story and are telling me this story. Right. And so maybe there's a story about how computers trying are trying to write stories and there's some type of interesting collaboration mm -hmm. there. But it, just, just without that intervention, um, you know, the state of the art certainly is just a, you know, I don't want to go so far maybe to say it's a plagiarism machine, um, mm. even though I think that is somewhat accurate. It's really just a fuzzy copying machine. And so we're getting a simulacra of something that we might feel like um, is a script, but no, I don't think that's something that could happen. And then, you know, I think the, but clearly there's technology there that's able to do, you know, things that were not possible even uh, six months ago. And so, you know, I think this is something that the, that creatives and writers should, you know, can, if they want experiment with and find ways to add it to their process. I mm -hmm. think the problem with the strike is that the studios are maybe looking at this as an opportunity to undervalue, underpay and um, kind of cut them out. So that's where these 
you know, it'd be great if we could all just get together and have like a really interesting uh, conversation about this and a lot of brainstorming and workshops. That's kind of like what we do in school. So that's yeah, yeah, that's why school. you're that's why but, you're in academia, yeah. not yeah. <laughs> not in industry. So there were a couple of things that you said there that I think are are really interesting that I want to dig back into. And, um, you know, one of them is the idea that, um, you know, I just kind of want to underline this because you mentioned it before. Um, you could generate something with AI that has a superficial quality of being a script. And then if, if studios have the ability to call that source material, then they've already have an effective tool for paying writers less. Right. So that, I think that that's an important point in terms of what is at stake in the negotiation. Um, but the other thing I want to talk about is this fuzzy copying machine. So this this copy machine. So this depends on how. So in your cat example, you need to have a lot of pictures of cats to feed this copy machine in order for it to, you know, develop this way of generating new cats. Uh, but where do these cat pictures come from Dan who owns the right. cat pictures and then <laughs> how do we give credit or at least go back and identify the sources that went into generating something that's based yeah. on one of these um, AI models yeah so this is a big mess and it, in some ways um, the ship has sailed and our the toothpaste is out of the tube I don't know which is the right metaphor here but I so to, to open this to open answering this question, I want to read to you a quote from OpenAI's uh, paper, which they published when the GPT-4 model came out, which is the current model that's driving um, ChatGPT. It wrote, in the paper, it actually says, given both the competitive landscape and safety implications of large-scale models like GPT-4, this report contains no further details about the architecture, including model size, hardware, training compute, data set construction, training method, or similar. Like they, it's like this is an academic paper about this machine learning model they train that literally says we are not going to tell you what data we used and how we trained the model. Wow. And you know, I understand like there are trade secrets. There's uh, um, you know safety implications of how the model could be abused. But I, I don't know. This that's a it's a little bit so, and it's tricky. I mean, like, that's very unusual yes. in in a peer reviewed academic paper. Just to sort of underline that. I mean, one of the one one of the you know necessary precedents for peer review is you need to describe your methods well enough so that somebody right. can can review them and and replicate them. I mean, this is part of the right. process. And, so that and, so that is very striking. And you can see how uh, OpenAI with the the name Open in there, mm-hmm. the company's name has really sort of strayed from what their original mission was. As it's become clear that this is you know. The, the sort of commercial potential of this technology is so vast. So I think there's been a lot of wonderful work in this area. Something that I would just quickly reference is um, a paper. This is from years ago now, but uh, fr- from a bunch of AI researchers, um, two well-known ones are Timnit Gebru and Kate Crawford called Data Sheets for Data Sets, which is really uh, one of the original papers to talk about how the machine learning community doesn't have like standardized ways to document how and why a data set was created, what it has, what it can and can should not be used for, what types of ethical and legal concerns. So this is something that I think has been, is not a new issue in terms of data collection, web scraping, and 
you know, I think also it's the kind of thing that copyright law is a, a very is is slow to catch up. It's a slow moving. It's not mm-hmm. caught up with. And I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people talking about this. And I know there's people at NYU Law School who are, you know, there's seminars and conferences and, and lots mm-hmm. of discussion here. But ultimately, um, you know, there are there are there there's a range. So if you look at um, Adobe, I think their system is called Firefly. I hope I'm getting that right, mm-hmm. um, which is baked into uh, the Adobe Creative Suite. They're the makers of Photoshop and Illustrator and all these other um, software tools that creatives use to design images and make content. Their generative AI system is explicitly they have a lot of uh, material explaining that their system is trained only on public domain or other material that they otherwise have licensed. I think that's Mm -hmm. a really great start. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. I would be amazing if these systems can have baked into them some mechanism for artists and creatives to opt in or opt out. So for example, if a, you know, we're not at this place right now, but I, 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 you know, uh, and I don't know how realistic this is, but I could imagine a world where a studio has a model that they use that's trained on maybe all the TV shows and movies that they've made only. And mm-hmm. only if the writers of those shows have opted in. And then when that model is used, you know, there's some type of residual payment back to them. You know, I think this might be easier to point to with like a, an image generator. You know, if you were, if an artist were to opt into having their um, illustrations be part of a generative model. And then if that generative model is, uh, creating work in their style, they could receive a royalty for that. Mm-hmm. I think the main the main problem with that is that we, we could talk about how. Uh, so two issues. One is n- there's not a lot of work keeping track of all this stuff, even just from yeah. you know like web crawlers or crawling around, uh, downloading everything. You know, there's you know I, I, uh, you know you can put a robots.txt file. It's like this little file you can put on your website that says like, hey, please don't crawl me. But you know. <laughs> who knows how that's really being uh, uh-huh. uh, applied or not. So I think there's a lot of, it's it's sort of a mess in terms of, and OpenAI is not publishing, like this is the data set we used. Um, so I think there's a lot of issues there, but there's even a bigger problem, which is that in the end, um, if all those cat, let's say I said, um, Amanda, give me all of the pictures of your cat and then find five of your friends and have, have them all send me the pictures of their cats. And I'm going to train my model and you all said it was okay. Mm-hmm. And what if I wanted to, when I generate a cat, say like, well, this one's really from Amanda. And this other, or, um, I have no way of knowing. Because right. in the end, what, and it's, it, what a machine learning model does in this process of taking outputs and generating inputs is it creates, uh, it's ultimately creating something called embeddings. Or it's turning any data, whether it's text, images, um, into numbers. And um, and then it processes those numbers through a series of equations. It's, it's making it sound very fancy. It's not really. Mm-hmm. And then the it outputs a bunch of numbers. And then those numbers are decoded back into some form of media. So in that process, you know, the 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 information, the sort of like the the IP, if you will, what's valuable, what OpenAI has, is they have the internal weights of all of these uh, uh, neurons that are in their model, this mathematical equation, essentially, it's a whole giant matrix. You could do all of this in Excel spreadsheets if you want. Like, it basically mm-hmm. open as, like, giant spreadsheets of numbers. And there's not, and, and there are people who are working on trying to figure this out, but it really flattens. Authorship, it, because it's just, like, sucking up everything, 
any sense of authorship in these large language models is totally flattened and there's no voice anymore. Mm. Um, and so um, it's a huge loss and it loses and the, it's, it's funny to like, and, and to play around with. Mm -hmm. And I think there, uh, it's cape, it's re it's, you know, it's, it's hard to know. Again, it's like, these are stochastic parrots as, as, as the phrase goes, but you know, they exhibit a lot of like really intelligent reasoning properties. Mm -hmm. you know, argue whether that's like simulated reasoning mm -hmm. or actual reasoning. I don't want to get into the weeds of that. Mm -hmm. So they're, they are able to perform really valuable, useful tasks like, translating uh to a different language mm -hmm. on the fly in real time so there's there's value to this but that loss of authorship that inability to to point back to where an idea came from and cite your source as well as even just like understand why it is that you know if you ask um uh image generator model to say like make me an image of a professor you know you're gonna get like a, a white guy with a beard you yes know, yeah so, so yeah no lots of lots of good lots of important stuff there so i mean just to try to understand um this this authorship and attribution issue is this is it sort of like dan if i put a bunch of fruit in a blender I can't go back and say you know that part that I just drank was 40 percent banana and 20 percent strawberry I mean is that kind of the crux of the issue because everything sort of goes into the same yeah. soup and gets mixed up that we it, we can't really trace back yeah I mean that I think that's an absolutely the right way of thinking about it mm -hmm. I think that you know when you're making the smoothie you could do a really you could take make much more effort to keep track of your ingredients mm -hmm. and their exact measurements and you know what kind of blade you're using mm -hmm. and the process so i think there are many ways that uh, people who are training machine learning models uh, whether they're you know researchers or individuals or companies could um and it's tricky because, uh, you know, uh, be, just be more open or, or whether even if there's a case where it's um, there's reasons, legal reasons why it can't be open, uh, more transparent about that process and that there should be a way for like the farmer who grew your blueberries <laughs> to be able to. You can't just go run and grab those blueberries and put them. Right, right, right. You got to right. buy them. Yes. So I think that's yeah. awesome. So I think. But yes. And so I think that the problem is on both ends. Uh, to me, I understand it's a it's an easier problem for me to think through some solutions for thoughtful and ethical ways to collect data, to credit the data you're using, to compensate people for the data. And also, by the way, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of human labor that goes into this. Mm -hmm. So certainly there's, you know, automated web crawlers, but when you, um, that are sort of crawling the web to just sort of suck down everything, but couple things that people might not be aware of. And one of the very first uh, data sets that, you know, started a lot of this um, explosion of research is called ImageNet. You know, there were, you, you know, workers online, you know, in a, I don't know if they actually use Mechanical Turk. That's Amazon's mm. kind of like micropayment for small tasks service, but who just get paid cents to just over and over look at images and like write down, that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a cat. Mm. Like this stuff doesn't just happen. And right. even with ChatGPT, the whole process starts with um, sucking just as much text data from anywhere as it possibly can. Um, 
but the the only reason why the uh, interface and the model performs in a way where it's able to have this conversation with you that feels like a back and forth and that maybe it, the reason why it'll say certain things like you know i don't want to give you the information about how to build a bomb because i don't want to talk about things mm. related to violence it's because of um the uh, uh reinforcement learning human feedback so after these models are trained workers sit there and like work with them and give them feedback. Like that was a good answer. That was a bad answer. And that's like a lot of labor and time. And, you know, I, I think that's also like tech workers and, and unionization is a whole other topic. Oh, that right. I'm into this and uh, for sure. But, um, but so I think it, it, you know, all of those processes and who's doing them, who's making that decision that this is good, this is bad, this is good output, this is bad output, what biases are creeping into that? Yes. You know, a world where we're generating all of our educational material, all of our entertainment through AI systems, it's, it's, it, it needs, they, they don't exist without the human creativity. That so, yeah, thing. yeah. And I want to talk about AI bias, but before we get too far, I just want to wonder if you could just, just we mentioned chat GPT a few times. Um, Just, I don't know if all of our listeners are fully aware of what chat GPT is or these um language, natural language processing models. Could you just give a basic description yeah. of, of what that is? Sure. So, um, you know, it's interesting. One of the classes I teach at NYU is called um, Programming from A to Z, which I really need to rename it because it sounds like it's a beginner programming class. Which, But the reason it's called that is because it's all about programming with text. And I think the first time I taught this class was in 2008. And I'm sorry, this is a very long-winded answer to your question, but I'm getting somewhere. Um, and so at the time, um, one of the things I was really interested in was looking at statistical models of how words appear next to each other in text or even characters appear next to each other in text. And there's a, a technique um, or it's, you know, that, that crosses a lot of di disciplines, a term called a Markov chain. And you can think of a Markov chain as something, any sequence. So even like the weather is a Markov chain because it's like sunny, 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 rainy, sunny, sunny. And you might be able to guess, you might be able to make a prediction that on Saturday it's going to rain because of all the days of weather before. So um, you can look at uh, um, text in that same way. You can basically say like, okay, I'm going to look at uh, uh, this book written by Jane Austen. It was one of the examples I used to use because uh, I think that was in the public domain on Project Gutenberg. Mm. But anyway, um, <laughs> somebody will correct me. I'm sure if I'm wrong about that. Um, and we could look at every time the words... Um, I think appeared in this text and we can look at 5% of the time, the next word is I. 12% of the time, the next word is you. So we could build this essentially probability table by looking at a sequence of words or what word would come next. That's a Markov chain. And there are all sorts of other algorithms for looking at how uh, grammar works. And there's um, you know, context-free grammars and all different kinds of grammars. And you can build program. And this is like kind of like what I was talking about before. I can design rules to then create new text. So this is something that I was always, it's really exciting. And students would make fun poetry projects and weird little chat bots and things using these techniques. Um, when uh, neural networks came back into the sort of like the zeitgeist and became like a really powerful tool with deep learning and all of a sudden big data sets. Basically, they what what I was able to do with the Markov chain was store a very small number of combinations of words and a very small number of probabilities. And really, um, uh, a large language model like GPT, there's Bard, there's Claude, there's so many of these companies who are developing them, they're doing ultimately the same thing. 
they are looking at a sequence of text and looking at ways to predict the next word. And you might, you might wonder, like, why don't I just get, if I give it the same text, shouldn't I just get the exact same thing every time? Why is there a variation? It's because it's all a probabilistic system. So uh, and that's why and there's also, you know, if you look underneath the hood of any of these systems, there's things like temperature, which is a fancy word for saying, like, how chaotic do I want to turn it up? Mm. So if I'm making a silly Twitter bot, I'm generally turning the temperature up because I uh-huh. want a lot of chaos and extra kind of nonsense that's part of the point to come out of it mm-hmm. but um i think the 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 real innovate the real thing that's different about these large language models is their ability to retain one just massive amounts of uh, a, a data in terms of like vocabulary and sequence, but also um, they use a, 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 a model architecture technique that's known as a transformer, which is a fairly recent, I think the transformer paper came out in 2017 and it has this mechanism called attention. So one of the things that I was never able to do in my earlier experiments is if, um, if I was tr- trying to generate text and at the beginning of the text, I would say, I was born in Paris, France. And then I would write a whole, this is like I'm writing fiction and I would write this whole long story or maybe I would ask the computer to start generating it. And at the end, maybe the, I, the sentence would say, and the language that I speak is, and I wanted to predict the next word. Uh-huh. So without any memory built into an, uh, an AI system, a machine learning system, an algorithm for generating text, it's going to have an equal probability of saying English, Spanish, Chinese, any language. But if it could somehow retain knowledge of what it said much earlier that I was born in France, it's going to be able to increase that probability to Paris. And that's where things start. To, and that sounds like a maybe a silly example, but that's that, that goes into like, well, why why is there suddenly like I mean, you 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 know some of the bots that I made for yeah. other shows like years ago that couldn't even put like the grammar together. Yeah, or, yeah. So that that level of sophistication, the algorithms that are able to both hold much larger amounts of context, mm-hmm. accumulate much larger amounts of uh, data for you know larger probabilities, and then have that memory aspect to it is what is the real sea change here in terms of. Uh, what what uh, and the, the general term for these you'll hear is LLM or large language model, meaning mm-hmm. a machine learning model. Again, it's just a lot of weights and numbers in a spreadsheet. Is one way of thinking about it, but it's large because it's been trained on and and it, it, you know what is really like unfathomable amounts of text. So so chat GPT is, you know, anybody can really have access to that. Now I can go and open up a browser and and start typing things in and 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 make requests, ask it to generate, you know, uh, a letter apologizing to my mother for canceling lunch or I could use it to, um, you know, to ask it to write a freshman level you know, intro to psychology paper. But um, is this really like the state of the art, what we all have access to with chat GPT? Or are there more powerful systems that are capable of things beyond what we can readily access? Yeah, well, a couple things I'll say. One is I would I would uh, disagree in some sense. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like we could both go online and I could I could I could like type that question in the chat GPT and see what it says right now. I you know, I pay for ChatGPT premium, so mm. I would get, you know, extra stuff for that. But one thing that's important, I say, in terms of access is uh, I can't run ChatGPT on my computer. Like, I am sending a query to OpenAI's server somewhere. First of all, they're 
collecting all the data, all the questions I'm typing in, they've got, <laughs> you know, maybe if I read the terms of service carefully, they're, they're, it's outlined what they can and kind of use that for. There's a way for me to delete my conversations. But so one thing people should be very aware of is that's not, you know, private information in, in the mm. same way that your email is essentially if you're using Gmail as a service. So, you know, to some extent, you know, this is the world we live in. We can't escape. Uh, I mean, you can if you if you want to be very, very um, careful and use lots of different kinds of like esoteric tools to keep mm -hmm. all of your data private. But but so that is one thing that access. Is, and the reason why I mentioned that is one of the things that I think is changing quite a bit, which is less about things being more state of the art but more of, more of a direction, which I am excited about, of people being able to uh, run models locally um, and be able to, to have smaller models that are trained on their own data that you could run on your own computer without uh, being sort of beholden to a company that's going to own your data or like cut you off from mm. having access or knowledge to how it works. So I think that's an important thing. That's one of the things that I'm really trying to do with my teaching and work is, you know, maybe I'm not going to get as good results, but if I can train a model off of only the stuff that I wrote and I can do it on my mm. computer and I can run it on my computer and like, disconnected from the internet, that's a very meaningful thing mm -hmm, for, for mm -hmm. me personally. I think that is also a path to creatives being able to have more um, agency and ownership over how these tools are used as part of their process and also feel empowered. Like I think, you know, one thing, uh, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, I, I'm a, 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 um, a plethora of tangents today, but one thing I would say is, and maybe there's anybody listening, if you're a writer, like, you know, there are ways, there are ways you can learn how to do this stuff. Um, and even just playing with it, I think it's useful to, to increase your vocabulary and, and understand. So that, that I think is point number one, I would say. The other thing that I would say to, um, is that um, there are a lot of models coming now that I think something that's, that's, um, that, that maybe aren't as, um, that you aren't seeing as much in the, in the, in the sort of like media that are, um, now I'm forgetting what the term is for this, but basically that are that are so generic that you can kind of give them any kind of input, any inputs and get any outputs. So I could say like, here's a sound file, generate a video that uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play some waves crashing and I'm mm -hmm. going to feed that into a generative uh, AI model that's going to give me a video of waves crashing that goes with that sound. I could also give the video of the waves crashing to the model and um, the model would then give me the a video with sound it generated to go with that or i could include i could uh, include some text with it so this idea of a model that can create that can take as input a flexible amount of wow. media um, image whether it's video image text sound and then generate the missing pieces of that so you can wow. so you know if, if you look at the results it's often very very crude mm -hmm. but you know you could also say like look at like dolly one compared to dolly two so you have to wonder the, yeah the um, pace is really right right and, and i would say the the what video like if people haven't looked at there are some companies you know one uh, a company that i that i'll mention named called runway ml i, I should also uh disclose that that company was started by uh some students of mine and okay. i was there uh, advisor to their, their mm -hmm. thesis and uh, that uh, kind of launched their company. But they're, they're a company that um, has a proprietary model to generate video, which is um, has incredible results. I actually went to, they, they ran an AI film festival, which was all AI generated uh, movies, which sounds like a horrible thing. Um, but to me, it was, uh, again, like 
it, it was all about the people who were making this and the stories they were trying to tell and the sort of creativity of what they were right. able to do with the limited technology. So, you know, to me, that felt like a really, it felt both sort of terrifying and weird, but also really exciting and, and interesting at the same time. So the, that is, I think, what people, what, you know, and, 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 the, and the, the, the unions are really smart about this. I, I don't, not super up on this, but, you know, I think when the last strike was in 2007, you know, streaming was coming, but it wasn't really there yet. Mm-hmm. So it was really important to have, you know, some things baked in the contract to sort of think about that possibility. And yeah. That's These, what... Mm-hmm. These negotiations only happen every three to five years. So when a technology is new and you're starting to see the leading edge of how that's being adopted, you do, I think, have to preempt what the what the eventual sort of logical conclusion of some of these things are or else by the time you get your next crack at the negotiation table, it could be too late. Yeah. And and for SAG after two, I think it's really the timing is really um, meaningful. They just um, stable diffusion, which is one of the company, it's uh, one of the models. It's an open source model um, that uh, does image generation, just came out with uh, stable diffusion XL, which is their newest model and a technique that I saw. It's called a low Laura. I don't have if I'm pronouncing it right. Low rank adaptation. What it allows you to do is essentially train your own. Uh, this is called fine tuning, which is different. So it's still using the original model, but essentially, like um, I saw somebody basically train uh, use low rank adaptation to take stable diffusion and just give it images from the Barbie movie. And now wow. everything that's stable diffusion that this particular fine tuned model, which is just like stable diffusion, but no matter what you give it, it looks like a, something from the Barbie movie. <laughs> so, so that's a silly example, but yeah. I could also, I could, and um, you know, if, uh, give it an image of, of my face and suddenly I could appear in everything that it generates at very high quality, which is really meaningful related to what the actors want in terms yes. of informed consent, because it's not just that somebody would need to, okay, you've got to come in. We've got to scan you in a 3d scanner for hours. We're going to take thousands of photos. Of you from you know, wear 10 different outfits, different lighting conditions. We need to amass this huge data set. They're like, okay, uh, this actor was in this show. We got like a, a few screen grabs of them. Ah, now we can now we can put them in the scene. Um, so um, so I think that having that to me is like somebody's likeness and their that craft of their performance and acting um, is is so um, important that yeah. I think that really needs to be thought about. So and, and spe- yeah, specifically what SAG-AFTRA has included in their proposal to the AMPTP is that performers must give informed consent um, about how using their likeness in this way and that the right to use AI on additional projects must be separately bargained. So this is the idea that and I think that Michael Chernis, who was uh, yeah. our guest a few weeks ago, gave voice to this concern. Um, you know, he was in Spider-Man Homecoming, so they have you know his voice and his likeness right. as the Tinkerer, and now they could go on to make ten other movies, including the Tinkerer, maybe not as a foreground, maybe as a background character. And he has no say over that. He doesn't get to negotiate for every one of those movies. If you include the Tinkerer, this is what. Um, how I should be compensated. Um, this technology, this is almost to me, Dan, and let me know if, 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 if I'm wrong here, like this almost feels like we're more on the edge of this being used very effectively than the, um, writing concerns. Um, we talked about how the, you know, using 
AI generated uh, content as source material can right. be really effectively used to cut people out of profits. Um, we know about the minimum room requirements where they want to involve, um, make sure that um, shows are hiring a minimum number of writers. But all of that is to say, I still think at the end of the day, when you get a script, there's lots of human eyes that have to go into creating that script. Um, we can't cut creativity out of that process, but I've seen some of this deep fake stuff and we yeah. can really plug in somebody's voice and somebody's image yeah. and, um, and start to use that at least in these background actors cases in a way that feels like this is very close on the horizon. Yeah. It's so strange. Like, I mean, my hope, my, I don't know if it's just like too Pollyanna or whatever is that like, who wants to watch that? So like it, it's somehow like, you know, the, you know, I, I the difference between being on a Zoom call with somebody and being and having coffee with them in person is so notably different to me, especially, mm -hmm. you know, uh, everything that we went through with COVID and just sort of being back in person teaching. I'm like, wow, this is the, 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 the power of being together and the power mm -hmm. of connection. So and to me, that's part of the enjoyment of watching. So my hope, uh, a hope would be that um things would work themselves out because people want to see people are performing and live theater is still a thing, but you know, that's, that's the, the don't talk to the live theater yeah. people about the yeah. viability of their industry. <laughs> right. too, I know. I so, but, but um, you, the technology, and, and I would say like, for me, like in, you know, the, the sort of Star Wars examples of bringing sort of Mark Hamill back and the, uh, mm -hmm. you know, mild Mandalorian spoilers here. Um, you know, I watch those scenes. It's like, it's like a parlor trick and it's kind of like, wow, that's amazing. But I'm not, I'm not really feeling in tune or in touch with the character and it only works for like these sort of like brief scenes. But, you know, you are right. Like where, when will that, when will, when will we cross that line where mm -hmm. I can't tell or I don't even know? And I think, you know, a concern... The way that I think about it, so first of all, I think it's so reasonable for the mm -hmm. actors to say, like, you know, maybe if you're going to use my face and voice, like, maybe you should ask permission and then pay me something. Like, mm -hmm. that just seems like, you know, very reasonable. And I I think this, you know, my my sense is that the studios aren't really coming to the table to, like, talk about it. They're just sort of saying, like, well, the technology is too new. We can't figure this out yet. So that 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 to me, I, I'd say hold the line would be, you know, I would hold the line forever for that because it's just too important. Um, for me, one of the things I think about as a teacher, you know, I make a lot of video tutorials online and, you know, if I wanted to, um, I could use generative AI to write a script for, especially with like programming instruction, like mm -hmm. these models, like they got a ton of knowledge of the stuff in there. So I ask it to like explain, you know, there's something in JavaScript called a promise, which is like this very weird thing that I always have trouble explaining. I could mm -hmm. ask ChatGPT to explain it. It doesn't, I'm a really good job. Maybe it's just plagiarizing something that somebody else wrote ultimately, but it's really good. I could have that. Um, I could have a voice read that. I could have it generate some slides with some sample code and that could be put, uploaded to a video and that entire process. And people are doing this, like tutorial videos automated. What I do in my tutorials is I get in the video, I'm awkward, <laughs> I make mistakes. I talk about what happened you know, to me as I like, tripped over my flip-flops this it's morning. It's so charming. So, They're right. really so, lovely, charming well, videos. That's, I'm yes. not fishing for compliments here, yeah. but my I, my hope here is that that can outshine and can uh, is added, you know, which isn't to say like, I don't get me wrong, I, um, I'm... 
I'm about to enter a semester where I'm going to figure out, I need to figure out how to use chat GPT. And I'm just using that as a um, mm -hmm. you know, proffer for like all large language models uh, with my students this fall, because like last year I was teaching intro to programming uh, one year ago, it did not exist. So yes. this is all, so I have to, uh, so, and I want to use it and figure out ways to engage with it and be, you know, talk about it in conversation, ethical use and be critical. So I, uh, so, 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 all, so yes, I, I just think that um, there's no way around it at this point. I want to try to figure out what are, what are, what are the best ways we can right. move forward? Um, I think, you know, some of the, you know, so the, so the, the actor's concerns is really about, um, you know, protecting their likeness, protecting their voice, their performance. Um, so, I mean, but Dan, do are all of us sort of subject in some way to our likeness and our information, anything that we have on the internet being fed and used in these models? Like, do we, if, if, if Michael Chernis can negotiate and not be used as a background actor, is there anything saying that like my headshot on the Post Show Recaps website isn't going to be used to generate some background right. actor in the next Marvel movie? Yeah, I mean, this is where, you know, we need um, regulation and the government to step in in terms of um, all kinds of privacy protections and data protections. Um, I think there are, you know, you know, what are what are you know, we, we think about this as the upcoming election. You know, I think it, you can look at examples of like, you know, fake um Zelensky videos that mm -hmm. uh, propaganda outlets put out during the, you know, the, the start of the Ukraine war. So what are the legal rules around creating, you know, fake content uh, um, that is with misinformation. So I think there's that, but yes. So I, I mean, in theory, if a studio wanted to put a lot of background people in like, like they're making a basketball movie and they want to fill the stands with mm -hmm. avatars of people. And a lot of times this is all done synthetically anyway. And um, you know, there's, you know, on the one hand, um, are they using it through, you know, having 3D artists who are making like a bunch of templates and then generating a bunch of like fictional cartoonish characters? But yes, in theory, they could just go into like you know, the producer of the movie, and be like, let me get my old high school yearbook here and <laughs> scan the page and then put all their friends in the background. I'm sure there are some, I, I imagine in the same way that, you know, if, um, you, you know, you're being interviewed. If you, if you walk in the background of like a reality TV show, mm -hmm. sometimes you'll see the face blurred out blurred, because right. like they don't have the permission. I would hope that all those same law, all those same laws kind of apply here. But, but I think there's just so many unknowns. And mm -hmm. this is again, why, you know, it's easy to, I, I, I know you've talked about this before. It's even like, Oh, what are those actors, you know, complaining about? They're all like famous, having fun in movies and what, what a yeah. dream career. And while uh, I, I think Michael Chernis put it better than anyone and really was so uh, opened my eyes to understanding about how the different pay scales and structures work for, you know, sort of everyday actors and background actors. But, um, you know, just uh, uh, the, the laws are not catching up for everyday people and in all sorts of other industries, like, yes. you know, what, is, what can UPS do with cameras right. in their cars for the monitoring the drivers? Yeah. So if, if this can be an example of how labor can negotiate and create a system of, fairness in terms of data 
um, ownership and authorship and, and fair compensation, then hopefully that can apply across the board to other industries and scenarios. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and most of these SAG-AFTRA members and most of the WGA members, I mean, we've talked to a few yeah. of them, are, you know, staff writers, background actors, stunt performers. I mean, there's a lot of people who are represented by these guilds. The industry runs on working class people, even right. if the first thing you think of when you think of a writer or an actor is a big movie star, um, that there's a lot of working class people trying to right. make ends and meet here um, that, 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 are, that are actually have a lot at stake in these negotiations. Yeah, and th this same question is gonna come up. I, kn I know that there's talk of the visual effects industry mm -hmm. um, forming a right. union. And I think this same question, like an example, you know, of like special effects artists and the desire to use uh, computer generated video. Is it, is it replacing visual effects artists? Is it just going to be this thing that now visual artists, visual effects artists have to go and clean up, but they get paid less for doing that. Right. Um, it's really tricky. Cause I think, you know, one, um, I think one nice example to think about there is, you know, something that visual, and I'd, be, I'd love to hear from a visual effects artist about their point of view on this. So rotoscoping is something that um, I, you know, visual effects artists are often having to do. And I see students do it in their creative work at Tisch all the time, which is this very painstaking, tedious process of essentially cutting out the, um, the, um, the 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 prof the the border of a human out of like every single frame of video. So you think of like green screening of like oh uh -huh. I'm standing in front of a green screen and I just erase the background and replace it. There's lots of scenarios where that's done not with a green screen but by hand very carefully by an artist, and it's a tremendous amount of work. It probably causes like repetitive stress and yeah and, you know it also like you can't do it if you're just like an individual on a small budget. So AI tools, machine learning tools can take input image and as, as the output, a rotoscoped prediction and can do it incredibly well. So for me, that is a shining example, I think, of a way where machine learning is a tool that's augmenting the process. It's helping um, take, it's helping uh, creators be able to move more quickly. It's helping uh, people who are on, students who are on a low, making a low budget film who don't have a visual effects studio, don't have the budget for rotoscoping mm -hmm. artists to be able to do that work. So there's a lot of positives there. But again, where is the line between something being a tool and so, that is augmenting and, and accelerating or accelerating is even the wrong word because our goal shouldn't be to move faster. Right. Like, it's fine to make something slowly and carefully, but uh, enhancing or augmenting Augmenting or adding to the process, complementing the process versus um, something that a bad actor is trying to use to take a shortcut, to pay somebody less, to kind of reduce the quality of the hum humanity that's in the creative work right. that we're consuming. Right. And I think that that really gets to this question with Paul Prescott, my guest, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how a lot of different industries have dealt with this issue of automation and right. that, you know, automation and um, mechanization and technological improvements, you know, sometimes they minimize the, the need for labor because they take a very arduous task and they can offload that to a machine. Um, oftentimes, because we also expect productivity to increase, we actually need different types of workers to be overseeing and making sure the machines are working and doing all of that. Um, but I think that it's really interesting in these creative fields, and maybe we do ourselves a disservice by 
talking about this as artificial intelligence is it's sort of like taking away what I think of as the uniquely human aspect of the process, which is, you know, making decisions, having an artistic vision, being creative, right? Like, I mean, these tools, like when we think about them as tools, like you would never say that, you know, well, my paintbrush really deserves half of the credit for this painting. You wouldn't think about it that way. Um, But the fact that I think it still very much requires that human creative vision to wield something in a way that makes it art, right? And not just something with the general qualities of a script or of a, of an image um, that that really requires that human creativity, that level of decision-making one point that I heard a writer make that I thought was really excellent is even if you have a script, somebody needs to talk to all of the stakeholders at the studio, find out if we can do that at the location. There's all of these things that writers do that aren't really just like literally getting the word on the page, which is the only thing that these AI tools can do. I mean, so, I mean, Dan, do you think that talking about this as if it's intelligence, as if it's machine generated creativity is kind of muddying the waters in this conversation about, you know, who deserves the credit? How do we compensate labor? I do. I do. I think I love the fact I love, I mean, I think as a thought exercise, it would be useful to have like this exact same conversation and force ourselves to say automation instead of AI every time and just see where Mm -hmm. that, you know, there are certainly, I think some big differences here. And I, um, you know, in terms of the level and scale of what some of these tools are able to do. And I think, you know, I think, uh, you know, so I think we have to be careful, but yes, I think it can be um, a misnomer. It can be misleading to try to anthropomorphize too much or sort of think of the computer as having the sort of reasoning or emotional qualities. Um, That can be done to great creative effect in the case of like media art and Mm -hmm. science fiction. And and I think there's a lot of projects that one could make around that. I I think one way, one way you you mentioned the tool, sort of this idea of like thinking about a tool. And I think it's a really um, important way to think about it. Something that I hear a lot or think about is, you know, if you, if you look at the history of, media, especially like the invention of the camera. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot of worry. Uh, you can find all sorts of historical writings about like, oh no, painting is, the artist is going to be gone. Now we have a camera. I could just take a picture. And, you know, artists developed, you know, abstract ideas and new ways to convey emotion. And so, you know, I think in some level there's hope that that would, the same would happen here, that if this tool is able to simulate the same idea as a written script that artists voices and the human creation process will become more important. But here's where I think there's two problems with that. One is the scale is just so terrifying Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, I really worry about just like content farms and this, Mm -hmm. like, you know, I I think about YouTube a lot and making stuff for YouTube. Like it's just like, there's no, there's no barriers to like just generating thousands of video clips and uploading them and just like, you know, overwhelming the system in a way that you can't even find the human stuff anymore. (laughs) So so that's a worry. And also um, the, I I just like these systems aren't happening. Um, It's not that a camera happens in a vacuum. It's not that there isn't uh, a, um, the, the, 
there's a lot of work and thought and science and research into building the camera, but there's something about the fact that these systems are able to do what they do based off of, and I don't want to, you know, some, I'm trying to decide whether to use the word like stolen material. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, it, it just, it's a nebulously uh, gathered material in a way that we don't, can't really wrap our hands around in any clear way to understand if it was, um, if it was allowed, if it was appropriate and right. what it even is. So that to me, those are the two major differences where that kind of analogy breaks down. But I still think the same, um, certainly, you know, and I'm, 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 I'm probably, you know, in the continuum of thinking about this, like I'm spending every day at a school where students are like, oh, what kind of weird thing can I make with this AI tool? Like that's the fun of it. Mm -hmm. So that's really what people are thinking of. Not like, how can I get the AI to do my homework for me? They're thinking about how can I get the AI to make weird art that like, it's going to say something interesting that's going to inspire that I couldn't do otherwise, or that will open people's eyes to like why AI could be harmful. So, right. um, so that's kind of where I am with this stuff. Yeah. At least. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't think at this point, I don't have concerns that AI is going to ruin art because I do think that there's going to be creative ways to use it and that, you know, people are going to be able to tell the difference between something that is an authentic expression of, of a human experience versus a, something that has trappings of that. I'm thinking about that trend I was seeing on social media where people were saying like, well, what was on the edges of the album cover? Let's zoom out and see what the yeah. rest of the, like what's behind the Mona Lisa. And the thing is like, nobody cares. Like the artist picked this frame and wanted to show yeah. you what's in that frame. There is nothing behind the Mona Lisa. <laughs> and if there is, it doesn't matter. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think AI is going to ruin art, but I do think that there are concerns, like you said, about, the way it's insidious effect on the film and television industry. Um, you mentioned YouTube and content and creating this glut of information to the point where it is, um, it's going to be more and more difficult to identify the genuine article. I worry about the vulnerability of children and thinking about like all yeah. of the YouTube crap that could be generated that looks like children's programming that has no educational value that has like nothing um nothing of uh, of of value whatsoever so i think that there are some really really legitimate concerns and, and as you mentioned i think we've gotten back to this idea of attribution and the source that things are based on many many times um you know, not just for compensating people for using their likeness or using their words or material, but also just the threat of bad information, like of junk getting into the system right. and then generating new content that's based on, 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 poor, on poor information, on bad sources of information. Um, you mentioned AI bias earlier, and I wanted to make sure we got back to that because I do think that's an important issue I'd like our listeners to be aware of. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, I think, a critical issue in all, um, um, and I think it's sometimes lost in, like, if, you, if you'll, you sort of like read, the apocalypse, doom and gloom scenarios about, okay, well, you know, a lot of like AI researchers, re you know, uh, a very well-known uh, luminary in the field, Jeffrey Hinton, who developed some of the original algorithms that drive a lot of these models recently left Google and said like, you know, uh, 
in a, in a sort of like Oppenheimer like way, like, well, we made this, but now it's going to destroy the world. I think, I mean, so it's an interesting discussion, but uh, is in many ways, I think a distraction from some of the really hard work that a lot of existing researchers have been doing for years around kind of algorithmic bias. And, um, you know, I think there are lots of very clear examples of where, you know, in, uh, you know, you know, in like, things like predictive policing mm -hmm. and, um, you know, using machine learning models to, you know, that banks using a machine learning model to try to, uh, you know, approve or, uh, of somebody's loan or decide whether yeah. to give somebody a loan. There are all these cases where you can really point to in a much more obvious way, like, oh, look, this model is clearly biased towards a particular, you know, ethnic group or biased mm -hmm. against women um, mm -hmm. in terms of and, and causing real harm in the real world. So that activism and that work that people are doing should really be what's in the forefront of the news and not the, you know, how the AI, we're going to tell the AI to make paper clips and then suddenly it's going to like destroy all the metal in the yeah. so it can make paper clips forever, which is one of the. Right. Uh, so, but, um, so I, I think it's a little trickier sometimes to understand where that comes in to generative AI. And I think, um, um, uh, Safia Noble, there's a great book has, is a, is a, a name. I'm, I'm forgetting the name of her. I'm just going to like a uh, recent book. Um, I, I'm like pausing to Google it, but, um, uh, algorithms of oppression is, is, yeah. a, is a great book to look at and sort of get a really good, um, background on all of, uh, of what I'm talking about here, but essentially, and, and a lot of in her book, she does a lot of look at, it's about search engines and a lot of uh, what you would see in a search engine. I kind of gave an example of this earlier. If you search uh, Google images for lawyer or search for professor, you will see, uh, you will not see a diverse array of people mm -hmm. of different genders and races mm -hmm. and ages. You will see, uh, you will, uh, and and you know, companies are working to improve, to mitigate bias, to to uh, build better data sets, and to uh, produce better results that are more representative of the communities that we live in. But that same kind of issue. Uh, is embedded in all of these models. And I think what uh, can be trickier about it is it's much, it's, it's hard to point to like, oh, let's open up the model file. Like it's literally like a file on the computer. That's a giant spreadsheet of numbers. Mm -hmm. be like that number 3.2756, that's the bias number. We just need to change that number. So it's a harder to point to. And so I think one of the dangers, you know, I, I know that one of the reasons, uh, thinking back to the WGA strike, for example, one of the things that I've heard the writers talk about, especially with these mini rooms or mm -hmm. not having the writers be able to be on set and mentor is that the community industry has made great strides in having more inclusive voices mm -hmm. in writers rooms. And uh, that is the only way for those inclusive voices to then grow into being showrunners and having their own shows and telling more authentic and wide stories. So uh, if so, one, just cutting those people out and not giving them their experience is bad because it will not lead to more uh, more stories that we want to watch and see and experience. But I think AI is only going to uh, make that worse because embedded in the AI essentially and, uh, you know, I'm using I'm just all in on the word AI now, even after all that discussion, <laughs> but um, embedded in the way that we automate content to, mm -hmm. that might see the script is you know, the vast amount of text that it's mining. And it's not, it's getting text from certain communities and certain people. And it's just right. heavily 
Um, it's not a representative sample of all of the writing and ideas of our global population. And I don't even who, if that's even possible to do, even if you kind of could. So, you know, it's insidious and it's not obvious, but I think it could really seep in if we're allowing the systems to sort of govern the topics, the like word choices um, without human intervention and, um, um, so that level of bias, those probably to go back to what I talked about, like the probability of what word, you know, what pronoun will be used yeah. in a sentence about a particular thing mm -hmm. is going to be skewed based on the, the, the giant corpus of all this text that is mine, a lot of which is hundreds of years old. Right. So I and, think that's yeah. really where the bias creeps in. Yeah. And I mean, I first became aware of this term, you know, AI bias, because a few years ago, Go, there was um, a paper about applications to healthcare and how it actually exacerbated right. social inequities in care. And the idea, I think, is if you have an inequitable system and all of your data, your training data is based on what was historically an inequitable system, even if there have been recent advances and improvements, that small change is going to be up against a large corpus of data that existed under an inequitable system. And then whatever the, um, the model ends up perpetuating could over time actually exacerbate that, detect that pattern and exacerbate that. And it kind of would become yeah. this sort of self-fulfilling system at that point. Um, so, and it, and it's, and, and it's really important to bring to the fore because it sort of flies in the face that, you know, Oh, well, the, if we just take the human bias element out of it, if we create something that's purely a machine, it cannot possibly yeah. have a bias, right? Because a machine can't be racist or, you know, sexist or, you know, homophobic. But actually, it turns out that yeah. <laughs> machines and algorithms can be all of those things because they're based on human generated societal generated information so all of that feeds back in and just reproduces and exacerbates those problems yeah. and it's not just the data so one of the things that i that i work in a lot of on open source software projects for code education for you know making uh, creative work with code and one of the things, uh, uh, Lauren McCarthy, who created a, a project called P5Jest that I work on, always talks about like, the quote, uh, you know, paraphrasing is, no tool is neutral. It's embedded with the biases and intentions of its creators. And so, you know, you think about it, like, so if I'm, you know, we're not just using these models in a vacuum. There's the chat GPT webpage, and there are people who design that webpage and the way the interface looks the way the word choice on the different buttons, uh, what is somebody who um, who has low vision or doesn't see, how do mm -hmm. they interact <laughs> with that web page? Accessibility is a question. So how the tools that we're using are built um, are also um, also really play a big role. And you know, you have to remember like an algorithm that you know you'll hear, you can you can find um, quotes are sort of the thought from a computer scientist saying like, well, the algorithm for sorting these numbers is inherently, you know, neutral, has no bias. Mm -hmm. It's just an algorithm for sorting numbers, but a human wrote that algorithm. And so that's kind of like a, maybe a silly example because it's hard to find what's the social impact and harm of sorting numbers. But, it, um, but it, it's so important to ask that question and think that through for everything because it's mm -hmm. a habit you need to form in, in questioning and being critical in using any kind of technology or tool. Um, absolutely. Um, well, 
I think, uh, you know, this has been such a great conversation, Dan. We've talked over so many of the different issues at the heart of this. Um, you know, I think that we uh, this has done a good a good job of sort of highlighting where the technology is now and what the actors and the writers' concerns are. Is there anything else about artificial intelligence um, or about these tools that you'd like our listeners to be aware of any misconceptions that you would like to disabuse us of? I don't think so. I mean, the, the main thing I would say is don't let people intimidate you into thinking like, oh, you, the math is so hard. How these things work is not something that you can understand. And so just trust us kind of thing. Um, so it's not easy. And, you know, learning about how th these different generative um, AI systems work is difficult. There's a lot of technical language. But I would say that if you are a creative artist and you are a writer or an actor, find a community, find ways to experiment with this yourself. It will improve your knowledge and ability to engage in these conversations and build some confidence to be able to push back uh, where, cause uh, you know, the tech industry is famously <laughs> like a place that can make you feel unwelcome and um, un, un, unqualified. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I feel that way all the time myself. So uh, like, well, I just teach the beginners. I don't really know how the fancy algorithms work. You know, it's very easy to fall into that, that trap for me even. So uh, that's all I would really say is to not let people shut you out of this conversation because it's tech, because it's math. And I'm, if people are interested, I, I'm sure I could come, I don't, off the top of my head, I should have this prepared, but can come up with, uh, maybe I can include in, in like show notes or something or on social media, some, some starter resources that people could look at if you want to like learn the basics of what a neural network is or what machine learning is just to help you with the sort of vocabulary and understanding of what's going on. Oh, that would be fantastic. Well, Dan, you are always welcome here. That's for sure. Um, where can uh, our listeners keep up with everything that you're doing and follow you on social media? Uh, you know, Google search will do. I'm on all the various platforms. Mm -hmm. Who knows whatever they're called? It's changing every day. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to give any plugs. I think actually, uh, if uh, so, I'll, I'll plug something else that I think people should look at. I think I mentioned it briefly, but if you're interested in about research um, rooted in the belief that AI is not inevitable, inevitable, and its harms are preventable, you should look at the Distributed AI Research Institute, Dare. Oh. Um, so that's a, a Dare Institute, which is a wonderful collective research group. Um, and then I'll also just mention, since we're talking about labor. Uh, the CFU UAW Local 7902, which is the contract faculty united at New York University, which oh, is, fantastic. so I'm not, um, I'm not a tenured uh, professor at NYU. I'm contract faculty. A lot of people don't, aren't aware of how much of teaching at the university goes to adjuncts and contract faculty um, who, uh, you know, I have a great job and work with wonderful people and have a very good, <laughs> a lot of good benefits. So I'm not here to, uh, but um uh, but which we're not a union yet, but if you want to look up the uh, contract faculty United at N NYU, I'll give them a plug. And um, I guess we're partnered with the United Auto Workers, which is oh, kind of a strange, strange yeah. marriage there. But I know a lot of um, educational unions, the adjunct union at NYU, uh, which just renegotiated a, a great, uh, I mean, from my point of view, it seems like a great contract. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so those, those will be my two uh, plugs. Yeah, labor in academia is an extremely important issue as well, um, because as Dan mentioned, a lot of 
the courses are taught by people at a lecturer or adjunct level. Graduate students do a lot of the work that supports a university. So once again, there are a, there's a lot of hard work that's being done that's not always fairly compensated. People don't know how you, they can't predict their schedules. They don't have contracts going semester to semester. So um, it's really important, the concerns of, of that industry, and, um, and they need a lot of support as well. So that is a great plug. Um, I'll also uh, mention that we've been um, plugging the Entertainment Community Fund, which is now distributed more than $4.7 million in financial aid to in industry workers. So again, if you're so inclined, feel free to, um, to uh, contribute there. And uh, you can find me at Dr. Amanda R. wherever you can find me. And uh, until next time, take care. Bye-bye.